Good morning. It's working. Um, that's right. Yeah, thank you. I, 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 was, I thought we could start this morning um, by actually laying hands on my technology up here. It does appear to be working, but if you could just help me out by like, just sending good vibes to like, this area of the stage, that would mean the world to me. Goodness gracious, if it fails again, this sermon's going to quickly turn into like Jesus in the temple turning over the tables. We're going to talk about anger and patience. Um, anyway, it's good to be together this morning. So I'm seven years old, and it's my first year that my folks have signed me up for, for summer camp, for overnight summer camp at Pleasant Valley Bible Camp in northern Michigan. And whatever you're picturing about Pleasant Valley Bible Camp, it's likely accurate, right? Uninsulated cabins, a chapel in the woods, friendship bracelets and swim tests, archery and shaving cream fights in the back 40. I was sold on summer camp from the onset, right? Like right out of the gate, summer camp was probably my first love. It's many of my core memories that I have from my childhood involve my years attending and serving at summer camps. And it all started at seven years old in East Jordan, Michigan. And so I snagged these pictures from the internet, which didn't exist when I was going to summer camp at Pleasant Valley Bible Camp, but they, this place has not changed one bit. They haven't updated one part of it, including like here in the, in the swimming pool, it's exactly the same. It's as if archeologists have discovered it and are now preserving it <laughs> as, as, an, as an homage to times before. It was very, it's very nostalgic to look at these pictures for me. I have incredible memories of summer camp at this summer camp uh, and many others in northern Michigan. But I also remember, I remember deep feelings of homesickness at summer camps. Anybody, can anybody relate to that, that like pit in your stomach and you're laying in bed and you're wondering if you're ever going to actually go back to your real bed, right? Are you ever going to see your parents again? I really, really, really struggled with that, especially the first two nights. Probably up until I was like 12 or 13, I struggled with homesickness. So that first summer, I'm only seven years old. That whole week was tough for me. The evenings being the worst, like right before bedtime. I don't know why they made chapel the last thing we do before bedtime, because you're just sitting there in the quiet, like forced to listen for an hour and a half. And then you're just thinking about going to bed. It was the worst. And so um, it's probably the fourth day or so, so we're in the rhythm, we're getting used to it. The sun begins to set, which is now like this very traumatic moment for me in the evening because that means I'm going to have to go to bed soon. And the homesickness starts, I can feel it right now. It starts to come up into my throat. And I'm seven years old, and so I show my emotions. I show my emotions as a homesick seven-year-old. Seven and this wiser, more mature eight-year-old, um, he comes up. And he begins making fun of me like you do. He starts bullying me at Bible camp, uh, which is, I guess, commonplace. But he just kept poking at me, and nobody was stopping him. Like, there were counselors about, but nobody was really noticing or paying attention to what was happening. Um, and so I decided to take matters into my own hands, literally. And so I threw my Bible to the ground, and I tackled him. And like Ralphie in the Christmas story, I'm just hammering him away, because I've always been a little bit on the portly side of the development scale, and I'm not sure what he was thinking, even though he was older than me, was not, did not mean he was bigger than me. Um, and so suddenly I'm pulled off of him, because that's when the adults decide to step in. Um, they grab me by the arm, and, they pu and he pulls me, this counselor pulls me off to the side of the path, and he sticks his finger in my face, right? Like adults do. And he sticks his finger in my face, and he goes, Paul? 
we never disrespect the Word of God. And then he forcefully pushes my Bible back to my chest and walks away. I'm like, what? There's no concern about the shellacking I just laid upon my elder, but a rebuking about what I did to my Adventures in Odyssey children's Bible? Huh. So we move forward on our journey in the woods towards the chapel, and I take a look behind me, and they're bringing a stretcher out for my friend. Um, And we get to the chapel, we take our seats, and we sing some songs out of the children's hymnal, and then a, then a counselor, a different counselor, that would have been strange, it was the same one, with considering what happens next. But this counselor gets on the stage and, uh, to lead us in sword battles, or draw your sword battles. Do you guys remember these, right? I can't see you nod, but I'm assuming there's some nods happening. This was always a highlight of chapel, because it, this is when they would award the free ice cream cones at the end. Um, so we all really, really paid attention and looked forward to it. Do you know what I mean by sword battles? Anybody remember those? So we call them something different, but this was back in the day when we would bring our Bibles to church. Um, At least that was the case when I was growing up. I guess it's just another thing millennials have ruined in their generation. Um, But these sword battles, these were competitions where you you would take your Bible here, and then you would raise it above your head like this, and you'd be sitting patiently and waiting, and then your leader or your counselor, they would call out a reference, and you would race to see how quick you could find that reference in your Bible. And so, like dogs learning how to roll over, right, we would just wait patiently for our command, right, because it meant a coupon for a free bag of Skittles at the snack shop. And so, and so we'd just stare focused and be, Isaiah 117, and you'd rifle through it, and then the first, fastest, quickest, show off. I mean, student in the Bible camp would, uh, would stand up, recite the verse, and they would get their twist cone dipped in sprinkles, and we'd all be very jealous. And so this is my first memory. These are my first memories of what it meant to respect the Word of God, right? What it meant to memorize it, as if we were preparing for some entrance exam into heaven, So last week we examined the way of Jesus by taking a 40,000-foot overview of Scripture and its entire narrative, right? And I had a lot of fun going from the beginning to the end of Scripture and this big, trying to give the big scope of the narrative and and the theme of Scripture and try to find what's commonly intertwined throughout all of it. And so in summary, the Bible is a collection of stories, letters, poems, songs, and laments that are at times beautiful, tragic, and confusing. But it always is giving us an example of how we can take a step forward in morality and consciousness and how we willingly participate in the creation of a world that strives for unity, reconciliation, and peace through the love of the other. To me, that's the best summary of the Bible that I can come up with and explains what it is trying to do from beginning to end. And so with that in mind, I want to stay focused on the Word of God this morning. I want to stay focused on the Bible and ask the question, what are we supposed to do with this giant book? Right? What are we, how are we supposed to treat it? What are we supposed to do it? What does it mean to honor and respect it? And so to do that, I want to zero in on a couple of stories this morning, one from the New Testament, one from the Old Testament. Um, and if last week we were flying at 40,000 feet, then today I want to come down to the ground level and really examine some specific interactions between God and man that are highlighted in the Scripture. So 
I'm going to try to do two things at once this morning, kind of like rubbing our belly and patting our head, which is much harder to do in front of you guys than it is in the mirror. Um, but I'm going to try to engage our mind and our intellect by giving us some tools for how to read and engage with the Scripture, while at the same time try to commission us in a way that I think will, will enrich our soul and our humanity. Because, you see, I, I think ultimately what Jesus is trying to teach us what Jesus is trying to do for us is to teach us how to be human, right? He's not teaching us how to be God. The Word becoming flesh is not trying to turn us into our own little divine being. It's instead trying to give us permission to be fully human. I think that's ultimately what Jesus is coming down as human to show us and teach us. It's to give us permission to be fully human. With that in mind, one story from the life of Jesus has a man running up to him and begging for his help. And so the gospel writer, Mark, he says this um, in his gospel. He says, as he went out in the street, a man came running up, greeted him with great reverence, and asked, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, why are you calling me good? No one is good, only God. You know the commandments, don't murder don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. Honor your father and mother. And he says, teacher, I have from my youth kept all of them. So Jesus looked him hard in the eye and loved him. I love that part. And loved him. And he said, there's one thing left. Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth. And come follow me. And the man's face clouded over. This is the last thing he expected to hear, and he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. Okay, so there's a lot in just these few verses in the book of Mark, and so let's look at a couple things here. When I read the Bible, I like to take the posture of wondering, right? Primarily wondering why. Why are these details in this story? Why would Mark choose to tell this story, and why would he choose to tell it this way? And so Mark gives us a clue right in the beginning of the story. Uh, he indicates that this man calls Jesus teacher. So right out of the gate, we know something not only about the man, but we know something about Jesus. It tells, it tells us they're probably on the same page religiously, right? They're probably, they're probably peers, or at least they come from the same Jewish ideology and the Jewish way of thinking. And so he probably speaks the language that Jesus speaks. He's enmeshed in Jewish culture. There's a lot that doesn't have to be said because there's an understanding between these two people. He sees and respects Jesus as a teacher, and that kind of context clue helps prepare us for about what's to come in this story. And so this man wants to know how to live forever, right? He wants to know how to gain eternal life. He wants to know what it's going to take to live a life that never ends. And so Jesus responds to him with a to-do list, calling attention back to a text that we can assume that this man already knows, right? If he's from uh, the Hebrew line, if he is an Israelite, if he adheres to the Jewish religion, then he would already know the commandments that Jesus is already listing to him. And I, I, I kind of think Jesus is a little tongue-in-cheek here, kind of like your witty uncle. Like, yeah, yeah, all you got to do is, you know, avoid the murdering and the stealing and the cheating, and you're going to be good to go. It's kind of like, like almost like making a joke with this man. 
And the, and, and the man responds by saying that he's followed these commandments from when he was a child, affirming what we, what we saw earlier, right? That this man does, in fact, have a very religious past. And then Jesus looks at him, his eyes full of love and compassion, um, which we can assume means that Jesus actually does want this man to live forever, and he says this to him, go and sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth, and come follow me. What's he saying here? He's, he's saying that it's not enough just to know these rules. It's not just enough to know these words, to know this law, to know the Torah. For these words to matter, for these laws to matter, these commandments to matter, they have to come alive. This is about taking a step forward in human consciousness and morality, and to do that, we, his followers, have to embrace and embody the purpose of the words, not just hear and understand the words themselves. So Jesus commissions this man then to leave that way of thinking, the way of thinking where safety and security are, and, and trust are all enmeshed in material possessions. And so in, to, in order to adopt a new consciousness in the world, he would have to then take on a whole new way of being in the world. And Jesus sees that. And he sees that ultimately it was this man's wealth that stood in the way of him taking that step forward in human consciousness. And so uh, he was likely wealthy because he was religious, which is why he's surprised to hear that, right? Like he has benefited from being a very religious man. Religion and wealth went hand in hand back in that day. Um, and it would have meant a total shift for the way that he lived in the world, a total abandonment of what he thought was true up until this point. But this is where Jesus places his emphasis, right? Do you want to know what it's going to take to live forever? Well, do you trust me? Do you trust that I, Jesus, the Word made flesh, do you trust that I know what I'm doing? If you do... And let me show you something, because I think you're going to love it. What do we hear? The man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he was expecting to hear. And he walked off with a heavy heart, because he was holding on tight to a lot of things and was not about to let go. What Jesus is asking of those who follow his way, it's not small, right? He knows it's going to cost everything. But it's worth it. The way of grace is worth it, despite all all of it, right? This life will put us, despite all that this life will put us through, if we just stick with it, if we just stay with it, if we stay faithful to this gift of humanity and use everything we've got to be conduits of love, to be conduits of love in this world, it will be worth it.
Wow, wow, that is unbelievable, incredible. Thank you, Sinai, thank you. Whew. So we're gonna dig in a little bit further, if we can get over that, that's awesome, that was incredible. Um, we're gonna dig in a little bit further into the same idea of what it might mean for the word, for the word of God be, to become the way of Jesus in our lives. And to do that, I wanna use a story from the Old Testament um, that I think many of us, most of us actually might be f very familiar with. It's one of those stories that we reserve for children's church just because it's really fun to put, um, to put on a felt board, but it's difficult to explain to adults because it's a little nutty, right? It's, we avoid it, but I think that there's something in the, really, really important in this story that reflects the same lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us in this story about the rich young ruler. 
And so we read in the book of 2 Kings, which is one of the annals of history that the Bible records, First and 2 Kings and First and 2 Chronicles, these are two giant pieces of Jewish history that are found in um, the Old Testament. And so in the book of 2 Kings, we read about, um, we read about the Assyrians coming to invade Samaria, uh, which was in the northern kingdom of Israel. You'll remember from last week about a king named Solomon, who he built a temple, and when he died, his kingdom it was split in two, and the southern part of his kingdom was invaded by the Babylonians, and the northern part was overtaken by the Assyrians. And these Assyrians, they laid siege to the Jewish land, and they deported the people living there. And it was around this time that a story begins to emerge about a Hebrew prophet named Jonah. And God tells Jonah, uh, he comes to Jonah one day, and he tells Jonah, to go to Nineveh, which seems simple enough. He wants, he wants Jonah to bring his message of love and grace to Nineveh, except that Nineveh is at the heart of the Assyrian kingdom. It's in the epicenter of pagan culture in that time. Uh, it's the pagan culture that's eroding the kingdom of Israel and reducing their way of life to a band of rebels that's living on the outskirts of society. And so in Jonah's mind, the Assyrians in Nineveh are the worst of the worst. They're his enemy. They're his oppressor. He saw them as nasty and brutish, and God wants him to take a message to them. And Jonah says, no, no way. I'm not doing that. And so in verse 3 of the book, Jonah, uh, we, we see Jonah, he, he gets up and he goes in the other direction to the city of Tarshish. So this is verse 3. God doesn't even have a chance to explain himself. He says, Nineveh, and Jonah just kind of nopes his way on out of there, like, not going to do it. Um, so, he, so he gets on a boat to Tarshish. Now, my wondering mind goes, where is Tarshish? Why, right? Why does that matter? And so if Nineveh is here, right up here, right, Tarshish is here. Jonah's going to the other side of the world, right? This is the Iron Age. They don't know anything past Spain here. Isn't this a fun little trick with the, with the pointer? Um, so Jonah is going across the, ed, across the known world to the edge of it instead of going to Nineveh, literally as far away as he could probably go in the heart of the Iron Age. And so Tarshish being the edge of the known world. So just think about that. We've just learned from three verses of the story that Jonah is a prophet of Israel, meaning that he's steeped in the law of Moses. He likely would have had the Torah memorized at that point. I'm not kidding that when I say prophets and rabbis, they would have memorized every single word of the Torah. They would have committed it to memory um, because they weren't able to carry it with them. And so if you were going to be a teacher, a preacher at that time, you had to have the whole thing memorized. Um, so there's probably actually very few people on the planet who know the law of God better than Jonah. And so faced with a direct instruction from God, he gets in the boat headed in the opposite direction as far away as possible, even though he knows who this God is and what he says and what he says about how we should organize the world. And if I'm honest with myself, I'm probably getting in the boat too, right? I'd like, I'd like I'd like to try to think that I'd be bigger and better than that, but in 2023, this would be like going and getting some FaceTime with Putin, right? It's just not an easy or safe or reasonable thing to do. And I wonder if the first audience of this story 
if they would have cheered Jonah on, right? If they would have celebrated his decision. No, don't go to Syria. Don't go to Nineveh, right? They destroyed everything. They took everything we had. Why would you go to Nineveh? And I think this is the point in the story where we too quickly make up our minds about Jonah. And we don't consider all that he would have had to sacrifice to go to Nineveh. And then this, and then this particular story quickly becomes about disobedience, right? The story of if we aren't willing uh, to do what God says, then he punishes us. But I think we have to be really honest with the decision that Jonah is making, right? We have to put ourselves in his, his shoes because I think there's something bigger happening than just a simple parable about disobedience and forgiveness. Jonah's terrified. He's absolutely shaken by the thought of life in Nineveh, so much so that he's willing to sacrifice everything that he's worked for, everything that he's committed to memory, everything that he's done, so that he can go to a whole different way of life in Tarshish. What? Jonah's not some rebel without a cause that's giving God the stiff arm. He's a human being having a very human reaction to fear and anxiety. He can't handle the what if, and so he sprints in another direction for a very different but somehow safer what if, right? So what happens next is very strange, and there's really no way around it. There's no way around the strangeness, so we're just going to meet it head on. Nothing about the rest of the story is expected, and none of it's necessarily black and white. It's all very surprising, and so as it goes, a violent storm overcomes the boat that Jonah is traveling on. Imagine a hurricane over the Mediterranean Sea. They actually happen once or twice a year. They're called medicanes. Um, and, it would have, and it would have been a rather unpleasant experience, to say the least, in a, in a primitive boat of that time. Jonah blames the storm on himself, right? He, he sees he's in defiance of God, and so God is punishing the boat. At least that's how Jonah is seeing it at this time. And so he says this to this group of pagan merchants that he's riding with. He says, throw me into the sea, and, I, and it, will begin, it will again begin, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is my fault. Jonah would rather die. He would rather commit himself to the sea in the middle of the storm rather than go to Nineveh. How terrible was Nineveh? How bad must it have been there? And now the fun part. He's swallowed by a fish where he lives in its belly for three days, begging for forgiveness, and then he's spit out after failing God over and over and over again. He's spit out and then finally makes his way to Nineveh. So let's pause there. Right? The fish, not the whale, right? The Bible never says whale. It's a fish. Yes, you were lied to in Sunday school. Um, and on behalf of every Sunday school teacher here and out there, I apologize, because, uh, you know, it sounds like we're all in the same boat with that one. Um, but I joke to ease the tension. Um, but my guess is you're probably having one of two different reactions to this detail about a fish swallowing a man for three days and then spitting him out. One group may read this and roll their eyes, right? Wonder why, as we as a society continue to believe and these mystical and supernatural ways of thinking, these illogical fantasies that are exactly why people turn their back on Jesus and turn their back on the Bible. 
And then I'm, I'm going to guess that there's some who are going to become immediately defensive, maybe already are, because it's what Scripture says, right? The Bible says that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, I mean fish, and, and survived for three days and then was spit out on the back end of it. If that's what the Bible says, then that's what had to happen, because if we begin to question those details, then what other details can we question? And I'm sorry to say I'm going to disappoint both of you because I don't know what to do with this, right? My logical brain says that this is impossible, and my heart says, why shouldn't I trust the Word of God? And so in the end, I've come away with two thoughts on the matter. One, I wonder how crazy it must have sounded to hear about a man who was thrown off the side of a boat in the Mediterranean Sea during a violent storm, and I wonder how magical and scary that story of survival must have sounded 2,500 years ago. And I wonder if this story of a fish maybe made the most sense in trying to explain something so implausible and inexplainable. The second thing I wonder, the second thing I think, I wonder if this debate about the existence of a mythological fish so large that it could accommodate a fully grown man in its belly for three days is more distracting than it is helpful. The point of the story was never to argue about the fantastic ways of God. It was to teach us about what it means for God's people to follow him. And so therefore, I'm not sure it matters what you believe about the fish, but it's much more important what we believe about Nineveh. For the people who would have first heard this story, the Assyrians in Nineveh would have been a cancer eating away at the lives of the Jewish people and their livelihoods. There was no greater enemy in that time, and God is asking his follower to bless them. If we settle here for an argument about a fish, then we're going to miss the extremely subversive nature of this story that seems to be implying that our enemy may be more open to grace and love than we are. Jonah can't understand why God would be sending him to Nineveh. In his mind, there's no version of the world where Nineveh could be a recipient of God's grace. And even when he gets there, right, the fish spits him out on the shoreline, he collects himself and walks his way to Nineveh, and when he gets there, he actually finds that this group of people is open to God's grace. It actually says that the king at that time responded to Jonah's message and, and commanded that the entire city, its citizens and its animals, be covered in sackcloth, right? We, we learn from the Torah that covering yourself in sackcloth is a sign of repentance. This king was going so hard on Jonah's message that he had the animals repent, right? That's how open Nineveh was to God's grace. And yet at the end of it, we see Jonah unsatisfied, right? He's still arguing with God about why these people get to experience God's favor after how terrible and painful and horrible they were to the Jewish people. And this is how God responds in the, midst of that faith, in the midst of that debate. He says, should I not have concern for Nineveh? Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Focusing on a fish distracts us from a story that can disrupt us with the kind of love that will grow us into more compassionate people. 
It's the kind of love, the same kind of love that Jesus is channeling when he calls us to love our enemies. It's the same, it's this kind of story that can transform our lives. It's this kind of grace that allows us to live forever. In both of these stories, right? Jonah and the rich young ruler, knowledge of the word of God is not the barrier to experience the life that we want. It was the lack of willingness to live out that word of God, to become the word of God. The same is true for us, right? Jesus is not asking us to become fanboys and cheerleaders or experts or theological arguments or champion sword battlers. He's asking us to hear these stories and react. He's modeling a way of life that only matters if we embody it. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus is pushing his followers to do. There's a story about 5,000 hungry people who are following Jesus as he's preaching across the region. And his disciples coming to him and they ask, what should we do, Jesus? All these people are hungry. And you know what Jesus says? He says, you feed them. When Jesus is criticized for caring for a poor woman, he says, you will always have the poor among you but you will not always have me. He's saying that when he is gone, that when he leaves us, it's our turn. The duty falls on us. The poor will always be with us, so the work of grace never ends. It doesn't mean to ignore the poor, right? It means that our job will never end until he returns. In the same section of verses where Jesus declares himself the way, the truth, and the life, maybe you've heard this section of verses from John says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In that same section of verses, we hear this. Jesus says, the person who trusts me will not only do what I am doing, but even greater things, because I am on my way to the Father and giving you the same work to do that I have been doing. Another version says, you will do greater things than me. When Jesus is making his final appearance to his followers before he ascends into heaven, he gives them what is called the Great Commission of Scripture. And he, he says, go, right? Not go and memorize the Bible or argue about marine biology in the Iron Age or figurative conditions of love and tolerance. He says, go out and train everyone you meet far and near in this way of life. Go and show everyone just how much I love them. Go and teach them about the kind of grace that considers not only our friends, but considers our enemies as well, that considers Nineveh as well. And this wasn't a directive towards us just going to Nineveh. It's a directive towards the ends of the earth. And yes, this is the hard part. It means everyone, every single one of the eight billion people that God has blessed this world with. Yes, even them. Right? We all have a them in our mind right now. Yes, God loves even them. And should he not have concern for them as well? There's a word for this kind of response to the way of Jesus, and it's the word incarnation. And we re when we read in the Bible, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. This is what incarna incarnation is referring to. It's defined in Webster, a person who embodies in the flesh, a deity, spirit, or abstract quality. The way of Jesus is the embodiment of his word and his way of life as our way of life. 
If this is the living Word of God, it is only the living Word of God if it is living in us and living through us. And so I've asked Sinai and the band to come out and close our time together with the same song as we sang last week. It's a a song, So Will I, and it's this beautiful, beautiful song, one we've returned to quite often. I bet we've used it ten times in our gatherings. But But I think it does such an incredible job capturing this idea of incarnation. The final words, they sing like this, I can see your heart eight billion different ways, every precious one a child you died to save. And if you gave your life to love them, so will I. Do we believe that Jesus knew what he was doing? Do we believe that he came on purpose and for a purpose? And do we believe that his love is worth it? If so, then the pathway to Nineveh has made clear it's scary and it's hard and it may cost us everything, but I promise it's worth it.
Thank you. So I got some notes after last week's talk from a couple people, um, which is great. I love that. Uh, well, last week we talked about the greater story of the Bible, and a good friend came up to me and she said, you know, I, I love the talk, but you left out one crucial part. And she's right. I missed, or, or maybe I avoided, uh, the last book. And it's a book called Revelation, and it's a book, a prophecy about the eventual collision of heaven and earth, right? In the end days, earth, heaven will collide with earth. Um, and it's a wild story. It's one filled with a lot of strangeness similar to human swallowing fish. But as the book draws to an end, in the final verses of Scripture, of the book that we have, we read of a great throne um, that's seated above this new Jerusalem. And uh, it's a great city that has been filled with people from every nation and every tongue to live God's ideal on this earth. And from that throne it comes a voice, presumably the voice of God, as there's no other who sits on the throne, right? And we hear that voice say, Behold, I'm making all things new. The promise of Jesus and his way of life is not safety, and it's not accumulation, and it's not prosperity. His promise is not of wisdom or knowledge. His promise is of transformation. Now, how hard and how far away Nineveh seems, he wants to transform us. He wants to make us anew. And do we believe that he can make us new? May you let go of the things that you're holding on to so tightly. May you see a capacity for grace in all people, especially those who we fear. May you see your Nineveh as fertile ground for transformation, as the opportunity to grow and become. May the word of God live in and move through you, not as a filter of truth, but as an excuse to love. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday, my friends.